Hello. Here on Search for Truth today, we have that famous hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You probably know the opening verse, which says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. This time, your Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, is looking to see what the Bible says about pride. And it's here you'll find help from God's Word, the Bible. It has much to say about the nature of pride and its effect on our lives. If we want to get victory over pride, then the Bible has some helpful answers too. So let's go to Brian now to discover more. Thanks, John. Your reflection about the cross brings us indeed to what must be the most effective antidote to pride. But the Bible speaks very plainly elsewhere about pride and demolishing it, when through the disciple Peter it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Is there anything that could be termed more anti-Christian than pride? Just think of the Apostle Paul's marvellous description of God the Son in Philippians chapter 2. It's there we read of a mind of the most profound humility, residing eternally in the second person of the Trinity. And it's there we learn that the heart of God himself is the heart of a servant. Little wonder then that when Paul writes about spiritual warfare in his second letter to the Corinthians, these are the words he uses from chapter 3 and verse 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What are the strongholds or fortresses that our divinely empowered weapons are intended to destroy? Paul's language here recalls the ancient practice of building a massively fortified tower inside the walls of a city where its citizens might retreat to make their final defence from. But to what is Paul's language being applied? The next verse unpacks it for us. These stronghold fortresses are arguments or speculations designed to justify a person's disbelief in God. These kinds of reasonings are their holdouts against the true knowledge of God. What Paul is saying is that our weapons, our spiritual weapons, demolish these sinful thought patterns. Let's try to absorb that. The attack here is against the mental structures behind which unbelievers, and at times we believers, live our lives in rebellion against God. It's good to read that our weapons are effective in bringing down every one of these lofty opinions raised up against the knowledge of God. We've been graciously equipped by God with the necessary weaponry to overcome every arrogant claim, every proud thought that forms a barrier to the knowledge of God. We are fully empowered to address every argument that's used to rationalise sin and to justify unbelief and to overcome all rationalisations which are the strongholds behind which the mind fortifies itself against the gospel. But although we speak of the mind fortifying itself against the gospel, 
Christian believers are far from being immune to pride themselves. Don't we sometimes try to rationalise some very dubious behaviours at times? The ultimate aim, of course, is to take every thought captive to obey Christ. The picture, as we say, is of a military expedition into enemy territory, an expedition so effective that every plan of the enemy is thwarted, every scheme foiled, every counter-offensive beaten. Whatever ideas hinder faith, whatever notions or plans were barriers to repentance, they can be defeated, captured and graciously transformed. Contextually, Paul is talking about strongholds in the lives and minds of those in the Corinthian church who were resistant to his apostolic authority. But do ordinary Christians today have them too? Yes. Such intellectual, philosophical and moral enemies to the knowledge of God don't automatically disappear when we get saved. The secret of the strength of these strongholds lies in two things. Human pride, that is, proud independence from God, and second, this is expressed through clever arguments and plausible reasonings that make the action based on pride sound like the logical thing to do. The reasonings or imaginations, as we saw, are treated as forts or citadels to be conquered. The gospel is a proclamation of the word of truth, lived out in a demonstration of love and righteousness, through the operation of faithful praying as we witness to our salvation. When the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, he declared the gospel, and in that way the Apostle destroyed their arguments, brought low their pride, delivered them and set them free. These are the same weapons by which he now attacks the strongholds still entrenched in Corinth. After the work of the gospel, there comes a second step, which is the new Christian's own personal responsibility. In capturing a fortress, after destroying the walls and moving into the centre of the fortress, it's necessary to root out all the remaining pockets of resistance. There will be enemy soldiers hidden away in the fortress, and they must be found and captured. We can't do it in our own power, for it takes God's power to destroy human pride. We must pursue every vagrant thought and capture it for Christ. The intellectual life is often the last part of a Christian to be yielded to the right of Jesus Christ to rule. For instance, we reserve the right to judge Scripture as to what we will or will not agree with, what we will or will not accept. Many play lustful thoughts and pictures over and over on the video player of the mind, even if not allowing themselves to engage in the immoral acts involved. Others allow jealous thoughts and resentful attitudes to take over. Though they outwardly appear to be friendly and cooperative with people, inwardly they are filled with hostility and resentment against them. How do you allow Christ to capture your thoughts? Well, you do it by refusing to entertain the concept which Scripture rejects and by acting on those it approves. Don't love the world, Apostle John warns, and part of that involves setting aside the vain glory of life, the desire to be someone. Wasn't it pride that was the real original sin? I mean the thing that brought about Satan's downfall while he was as yet an angel of light? Despite having a privileged position, his thoughts were on self-advancement and exaltation, the exact opposite of Christ. The Apostle Paul calls on us, to imitate him, that is to imitate 
Paul as he himself was an imitator of Christ. The older Paul grew, the more acute became his own sense of sin. The most godly men in the Bible were deeply aware of their own utter depravity in the presence of God. It's significant that in none of the cases that we could mention did the Lord say, that's not true. Once the man realised the truth of his sinfulness, the Lord graciously gave words of encouragement to restore. In fact, it could be argued that God's specific intent in each of these men that we could name, but you'll know them from Scripture, was to bring them to a lower and more accurate estimate of themselves in God's holy presence. Many times in Scripture, those who saw the glory of Christ, for example Isaiah, were soon on their face on the ground, like Daniel. Let's see if we can track Paul's personal learning curve in this regard. Around the year 55 AD, Paul wrote, and we find this in 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote these words, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Half a dozen or so years later, in or around 61 AD, he then wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Again, Paul bends the language. He literally takes the Greek word for least and adds an ending which is really awkward, if not impossible linguistically, so that he comes out with a word that means in effect, leaster. Paul is saying he's less than the least of all the saints. It expresses Paul's honest, deep self-abasement. But there's more to come from this man. More than a couple of years later still, somewhere around 63 or even perhaps 66 AD, he writes, and this is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul never got away from the fact that Christian salvation was intended for sinners. And the more he increased his grasp of the magnitude of God's grace, the more he deepened his consciousness of his own naturally sinful state. Understanding the deep truths of God's word, as the Apostle Paul did, doesn't give a man a big head, but instead it gives him a broken and a contrite heart. Some think Paul was playing off his Latin name, Paulus, which meant little or small, perhaps. The idea would then have been, I'm little by name, little in stature, and morally and spiritually littler than the least of all Christians. What is certain is that the once proud Pharisee was now a model follower of his Lord Jesus Christ. He had used well the spiritual weapons at his disposal. The stronghold of pride was well and truly breached. God had given abundant grace to his humble servant in order to exalt him at the proper time. May we learn from this great testimony of a true warrior for God. Just gain
As usual, I remind you that uh, there's a free book available if you go to www.churchesofgod.info forward stroke media, then you can download uh, the copy. If you're not able to do that, then you can send for one by writing in and asking for Going the Distance. And you can use email or the post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4, 8DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So it's been a delight to have your company today. I hope you enjoyed the study and I hope you'll be able to join us next week. Till then, it's goodbye. Very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon and may God richly bless you. See